Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Breton Rodriguez, and I'm speaking with Francisco Peña Fernandez about his research on the impact of the story of Cain on medieval Spanish literature, as well as some of the ways that digital tools and digital humanities can help us to, do, to better understand and think about some of the big topics in the study of medieval Iberia. But first, a little information about our guest. Francisco Peña Fernandez is an associate professor in the Department of Languages and World Literatures at the University of British Columbia and the coordinator of the World Literature Program there. He earned his BA in Ancient and Medieval History at the Universidad de Sevilla and his PhD in Hebrew Philology and Religious Studies at the Universidad Complutense de Madrid and his PhD in Medieval Spanish Literature at the University of California, Davis. His research is wide ranging and interdisciplinary in nature involving literary studies, biblical studies, religious studies, and the history of ideas. So Francisco, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. So I'm just gonna go ahead and jump into it. I was, I was looking through your research and you've published on this huge range of things. So I'm gonna to try to kind of focus a little bit, a little bit more closely today. Um, on some of the recent work you've done on this figure of Cain, so your recent book on Cain, before talking about some of this, some of these digital humanities issues. So the, the first question I have, and I, I like to ask this to everyone, is, is what drew you to this topic? Was there a particular text or a story that first made you think about Cain and think about his impact, the impact of the story when we think about early medieval Spanish literature? Well, thank you. That that is a great question. I, I, you know, like that they always have Spain always have been like defined and defined itself as a Kainite country, as a country always divided in a confrontation between brothers. I did work on Cain with I did my dissertation with Samuel Armistead, but but then a few years later, uh, I thought about writing a book regarding the the Bible to an Spanish audience because the, in a Spanish audience in, in a Spanish audience normally. Have not, there's not so much written about Bible as literature and how much Bible influence and deeply really shape the way we think about the past. So I thought going back to him because he was a perfect, I knew him very well and he was a perfect example of, of how to, to, to articulate these two main ideas. One of the, the things I was wondering because they, uh, I don't know if you, you remember the pa Francisco de Goya's painting uh, fight with cudgels that is a, a with Goya try to represent Spain in that in that fight. No, they are buried to the uh, uh, kind of in the ground, and they are fighting with a stupid fight because they are going to hit each other, and both of them are going to hurt each other. And that was in a time where really Spain was deeply divided. You no know, pro-French, anti-French. Uh, the illustration, the, the the whole you know very reactionary. Spain is still living there with Spain that tried to be more modern. Many different it, it, it scenarios of, of, of brother, brotherly fighting. And there have been a lot, of a lot of things written about that division that goes from there to the Spanish Civil War. But the interesting thing is that this, the same way that the Spanish Civil War was kind of the prelude of the World War II, as you know, uh, what Hitler was very interested of what was happening during the, the Spanish Civil War. And he was also testing his weapons there uh, to see if he was gonna. And when Franco won the war is one of the main you know, reasons why Hitler you know, moved mm -hmm. straight his troops and, and started doing what he did. Well, that happened also in the 14th century. In the 14th century, it was a Spanish Civil War where there were French and English involved testing new weapons 
and testing the water for a big bigger confrontation was the 100 year war. Mm -hmm. So we had that in the 14th century. So one of the ideas was first to go to go to track that Keynesian back then, before that event, uh, and also to use Keynes as a way of showing to a Spanish reader that normally are not, there's not so much scholarship done on Bible as literature and the relevance that this, those stories have today for us. So that was the main reason, track Keynesian, and at the same time use Keynes as a way to, to show that. So the first part is devoted to Bible as literature and also direct allusions to Keynes. The second part, more Bible and history and oblique mentions of Cain. It's very interesting with uh, biblical references, when you do it in a silent way, they're far more effective hmm. than when you do it clearly. Okay. So when you kind of a little bit more subtle about the, the references that you're making, they have a little bit more impact and more power. Yeah. When you make the reader or like push the reader to make the connection itself, itself it would be more powerful because hmm. it's like he's discovering something that was intentionally put there for you to make the connection. So when you do it in a, in that in a silence or invisible way, the the reference, the biblical reference, make more far more power. I, I like that, right? So you have the silence, and you let the reader come in and enter in a conversation with you, the the author. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also like this earlier. So you're going back to this this first civil war, this this I mean the Trasamo Revolution, this war between Pedro the First and Enrique the Second. Um, so you're kind of in the mid 14th century. I, I love that. I'm, I'm curious, do you see any earlier representations of this, this story? I mean, I'm, I'm curious just when do you see or when would you highlight this, the earliest representation of Cain or Cainism that you found in, in Spanish literature? Also, a quick note, I'm using Spanish in a very all-encompassing sense here. Where that is a, Italian, but also yeah. kind of well in Portuguese, Catalan, really. Yeah, the problem is what, what is Spanish? In theory, Spain doesn't exist until the 15th century. Even then, Castile and, and, and Aragon has completely different planets. And then if it could different laws, everything is different. Really, Spain started existing much later. But what is interesting is, where are the narratives that will be retroactively mm -hmm. connected with that idea of Spain that is born mostly in the 19th century, that romantic idea? Because really, the country is a 19th century reality. As you know, in the Middle Ages, there was not such a thing. The oldest is Portugal, but it's more a geographic circumstance, more than a really an idea. But what's interesting is that, okay, if you invented in the 19th century, which are the narratives that you use to create that country? And if we make that logic, the oldest reference of Cain that is powerful and is part of the ideology of what is going to be Spain is Isidoro Seville. Can you, can you tell our audience really quickly who, who was Isidoro Seville? Why is he important? And also just yeah. really quickly, broad strokes. And I, yeah. I know this is like, we could talk for an hour and he's a yeah. but Isidoro of Seville is, comes from an aristocratic Roman family. Uh, is that is considered the last Latin father of the church. And he was a very powerful guy in his time, which with all the senatorial families in that time, with, we, we are in the time of the, of the Visigothic Spain, no? Oh. The Visigoths are taking over, but there is a lot of confrontations, you know? So you have the Byzantines, you have the Visigoths, you have the Romans, uh, Hispano-Romans. He is an Hispano-Roman, he's Catholic. The Visigoths are Arians. 
And then you have the, the Byzantines uh, that are Orthodox, you know, like in the different church. So there is a huge, is, is it, like, like always happened in ancient and medieval times, is a very dangerous time to be anything. You can be rich, poor, it's dangerous. Doesn't matter what. Uh, so he's a guy who really is very smart on saving his, his neck, let's say. <laughs> so what they do, they're from Cartagena and they will escape from the Byzantines and they he, he and his brother they will make a build kind of a, an identity that will be very strong of what is going to be Spain later and in fact Isidore is a huge institution in a very like conservative city like Sevilla in the Spain no like kind of the intemporal Spain and that is why it's important not because Spain exists but it's because he started inventing it in mm. a way that then is used later on so Isidore, he was a very important symbol within the Franco regime, for example. But the thing with Isidore is that he will create an identity that have came involved first in, in saying, you know, we are the real, they are the fake, we are the chosen, they are the curse. And of course, because he's talking about the Aryans. So he is from this minority, that is the Catholics, the Roman Catholics, from you know the the Nicene Christians, and he created all this intellectual work. He's a Roman. He's still that is the thing that the people have this idea of Middle Age. But Sevilla and the, uh, the Mediterranean is still the ancient world. It's the same thing. So he he wrote the first encyclopedia. That encyclopedia was used in the Middle Ages, and he had a very prolific. Uh, uh, and all the work that he does is very. In the in the in the connection between theology and politics, he never was disconnected from politics, and he used Cain to create this otherness. And he sadly is the writer of the most influential anti-Jewish book during the whole Middle Ages, that was the Contra Judaeus. It was the most influential anti-Jewish book, even though it was written by someone that probably never met a Jew in his life and had no idea about Judaism at all. I mean, but there'd be a Jewish community in Sevilla at that time, right? There was, okay. but the, he didn't spend a minute to wonder about them. That is very common in anti-Jewish writings in antiquity. Uh, it's not about a real Jew, it's an invented Jew. Most of the Christian writers, with one or two exceptions, they were completely ignorant about Judaism. Augustine among them, you know, mm. he had no idea about Judaism. Judaism is a tool that you use to create an other. In the case of Augustine, the, the Manichaeans in, in the relation with Isidore, the Aryans. So the, really the Jew is the, the other Christian, the bad Christian. And do you see the figure of Cain kind of going into this, this creation of this imaginary other, this kind of imaginary opponent as a way of reinforcing your own identity? Like we're not like yeah. them. Okay. Yeah, and it's very interesting because when Cain comes to a scene, there is anti-Jewish behavior involved. And it happened also during the, the war between the Pedros that anti-Judaism is what explodes and is the, the prelude of what is going to happen from there to the 15th century with the Catholic kings. That they, anti-Judaism and Cain are always connected. Even though that Cain comes when you have to justify killing your brother, like every Castilian king did, but it's a tool that when you mention Cain, because in, in Christian exegesis, it was used Cain as the Kainites were the Jews and the 
Setites or the people who who come after said the, the people of said are the Christians. So this is kind of a, a typological impose to to the scriptures. So they they were a stereotype in this Kainite profile, and this is what Isidore did very effectively. Before him, he was not the first one. Augustine and many other mm-hmm. and, and so forth. But he did it very effectively. In this contra Judaeus that was really meant to be written against the Aryans. Okay. And so where are some other places? So we see with Isidore, so with Isidore, I think we're in the seventh century. Yeah. Um, so what are some other places where we see this, this figure of Cain in these early, I mean, I, I, I know in the description in, in your book, you talk about a yeah. lot of these early Castilian histories, these early yeah. histories. So where are some other places we start seeing this figure? How does this develop as we move up towards I mean, as you mentioned in this the Civil War, Enrique II yep. has this, this strong anti-Jewish element to his side, it kind of this type of conflict. So we see that with the Tresamara from the beginning. So the main the main next step to Cain and to the Spanish identity come from Jimenez de Rada in mm-hmm. the beginning of the 13th century. Jimenez de Rada is is a is a good, very good example of of. Uh, someone who comes from, not at the bottom, but really middle and goes up very intelligently to a, one of the most powerful person in the whole peninsula at this time. And Jimenez de Rada used it. it, it, it. We even like tried to work with their connection with uh, Arabic historiography. And he was quite a, a remarkable guy for being Christian because at that time, Christian bishop and archbishops were not especially articulated intellectually, but he he was a very remarkable guy and very manipulative, of course, and he had he re, he had some probably more power and influence than the king himself. And he wrote a history, also a, a, a history that is very relevant for the, what we are studying. Jimenez de Rada, he did it in Latin. He is very influential, creating a specific typology that then is going to be followed for future uh, historians in in Spanish. Where, so where do we see, I mean, Jimenez de Rada, he's writing, if I remember correctly, he's writing for Fernando III. He's writing yeah. kind of after some of these major, I mean, I remember his account of the Battle of Las Navas, where he's talking about Alfonso. Yeah, 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 he's there. He's there with his own army, yeah. And he's there, he's fighting, he's just fighting. He's fighting, of course, yeah. This wonderful figure. Um, the more you kill, the more sane you become, <laughs> like Alfonso's father, You because he killed so many, he was named Saint. Because mm-hmm. Santo, because yeah, because he's right. conquered all these territories. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I like this idea where we see Jimenez Errada creating this 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 typology, this this yeah. manner of kind of writing history to be followed. Yeah. And so you see him using this figure of Cain as well, and then it kind of gets picked up from Jimenez Errada moving forward as well. Yo, Jimenez Errada is very smart. He knows how to articulate. He's using Isidro of Seville is a big reference for all the. Castilian historiography, Isidore of Seville, is kind of the pattern that they follow. And they follow the same idea of this is Christian Spain that has to be united. And this is the, the ideology of the Reconquista is born uh, with this in this moment. It's mm-hmm. also a, a, a retroactive idea of history, no? So they try to retroact the, that ideology to Isidore of Seville and how right after Isidore of Seville, the conquer of the Moors come and they disrupt that perfect Edenic uh, uh, place, no? Do you imagine the, the Spain of the Visigoth, how Edenic could be? But anyway, they disrupt that Spain that was gonna be Catholic, and then they are the, the Reconquista, these Catholic kings taking over all the land 
and try, bring it up back to Christianity. Well, that was not the case. Of course, the Castilians were uh, conquerors by nature from the very beginning, but they were fighting more Christian kings than Muslim kings. So I, I, I studied the historiography and I find this really fascinating. I love the way that this, this story, this history gets rewritten, becomes more teleological, becomes all about kind of working towards this, this final yes. conclusion. So I, I wanna move forward a little bit and then we, we can transition in a bit here. But moving forward from Jimenez de Rada, obviously, I mean, Alfonso X and his histories come in the next generation, more or less. Um, so I'm a little bit curious how we see this, this keenism for Alfonso X. And I mean, we could maybe touch on that briefly, because I know we'll talk about Alfonso X more in the yeah. second part of this. And then I'm also particularly interested in looking at someone like Pedro Lopez de Ayala, where we see kind of, I mean, there we have Pedro I, who's literally killing his brothers. I mean, I'm thinking yeah. in particular the scene with Fadrique, where he kills him, he has him stabbed, and then he sits down and eats a meal with his, you know, yes, his, his yes, 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 yes. So, yes. Um, uh, so, so it's a wonderful scene. I mean, amazing, amazing, amazing scene. So I'm just, I'm just kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way that this this Cainism develops moving forward from from this time. The Pedro Lopez Ayala is the masterpiece of historiographies. It's really a masterpiece. He was an amazing poet as well. Pedro Lopez Ayala had the most difficult job to do, that is writing the history of Enrique Trastamara, that was the most kindite person ever <laughs> in history. He killed his brother by treason. He you know, lied to him, sent him to a place that is apart to the forest, surrounding by other people, killed him and cut his head and proclaim him. He's a bastard. So he's probably not a very nice human being, but how are you gonna write the, the, the how can you legitimize someone like him? So Pedro Lopez Ayala, he has the job to do it. He's the perfect person because he has been serving Pedro hasta, until he saw that, that he was gonna lose the work. And so he moved to the other side and he knew perfectly everyone. So what I believe that he did is that taking the pattern of the killing of Pedro, he created a kind of a type of all the killings of Pedro before. Uh, because it's so kind how he died that how can you make able king and king able? And he what he does. He uh -huh. used it, of course, all the uh, magistry that, that like Jimenez de Rada and other people have done before because all the kings that won are the kings that were killed, that killed their brothers. Every king that was governing Castile or Leon is because they killed their own brothers. There was not a single one that didn't kill his brother. In most of the cases, they were the kings. The kings writing the story of Cain. Well, I mean, not, I mean, I, I don't know if every king had a brother to kill. I mean, I'm thinking of like Fernando III, but yeah. in, in other cases, we, we, we do see this kind of happen. I mean, yeah. Alfonso killed a couple of his brothers, had them executed. Enrique II is, is a great example, though, because he did literally kill his brother, right? I mean, he yeah, he's did yeah. it hand to hand. He stabbed, I yeah. mean, depending on the account, I like Ayala's account, yeah. Lopez Ayala's account, where he stabs him in the eye, right? Yeah. So I, 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 I like this idea of how do you transform kind of someone from being Cain into Abel? And so you're saying kind of yeah. by presenting these earlier images where Pedro yeah. kills him. Like, like the one you mentioned, no? So what he did is he uses the typology of Pedro Lopez Ayala of what is a good fratricide or a bad fratricide, he killed him because he has to kill him. He has no other way. But he also uses the, I believe, narrative of the Beowulf and many other monster narratives. He has to make Pedro a monster. And a monster like the, the apocryphal Cain, a monster that is killed by Lamech in the forest, Montiel, because he mistaken him with a wild animal. 
So Pedro gets to the tent of Enrique and he's like, Ugh! and he doesn't recognize his brother. He said the Chronicle, like the way, the same way Lamech didn't recognize Cain when he killed him. So he saw a monster coming to the tent and kill him. <laughs> so it's very interesting because it happened very fast. And it's very much that the same episode of Grendel coming into the Beowulf mill room, no, like the so he comes suddenly and he's killed by all these people, no, Beowulf and all his. So it, it very followed kind of the same kind of like episode. He's a monster. Pedro has become a monster, and that is why you have the previous episode, how he killed these people. Eating in front of your own victim is a monster way. Mm -hmm. So it's impossible that Pedro Lopez Ayala knew about this episode, but he has to make him eating in front of his victim the same way that he would be eating his victim. So he's a, and that is a monstruosity. And, and he you have the amazing tradition of Cain as a monster in apocryphal tradition that is so rich. And it's the, the tradition that the people know. People do not know the Bible because they don't know how to read. They know the apocryphal legends of the Bible that are far more efficient for an audience. I, I really, I like this connection of kind of turning Pedro into, into a monster, right? He definitely has yeah. to delegitimize some takeaways because yeah. his moral authority as a way of justifying this thing. Yeah. Um, this connection between Cain and Grendel is also interesting. I mean, we, we see yeah. in, in Beowulf yeah. this idea that Grendel's of the lineage of Cain, right? So yeah, he's, he's the lineage of Cain, yeah. He's yeah. basically a descendant of Cain as well. Um, the moment in, in the tent in Montiel, at least in Lopez de Alas, is, is interesting because, I mean, Pedro goes in and he's, he's like, you know, who's this son of a bitch who calls himself the king of, of Castile? And then Enrique yeah. jumps up, you know, and they, they have yeah. this fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he comes with, he wants to fight. He's like, it makes no sense because a guy who is going by himself to negotiate, when he is winning the war, Pedro was winning the war, and he goes to negotiate. Well, what's winning? Like, what's it kind of... Uh, like yeah. He was I mean, he was, I mean, Enrique had him besieged at that point, and then he yeah. kind of tricks him, at least in Lopez Ayala's account, then he tricks him into coming out. Yeah, but comes. but the thing is that he's going to negotiate. You are not going to get to the ten and start, you know, that doesn't make sense. So that is why it takes some, like, Pedro Ayala started writing it much later because he really, I believe that it took him a lot of time to see how I want to tell this. Yeah, no, for, for sure, right? Like, how, how do you, I mean, this is the big thing, right? How do you take someone from being, how do you yeah. turn someone into being the, the victim when they're doing this, this horrendous thing or they're, they're the betrayer, right? Which, which, there were still pedristas there. There were still people fighting for Pedro after he died. So how can I make something powerful to kind of like help the Trastamara? The Trastamara were not, never going to consolidate. They are the bastard, they are illegitimate. They have killed the king. You know, and that is the power... And that is why I thought that this was interesting because we live in a post-truth world. Hmm. It doesn't matter if it was true or not. It matters how you tell the story, you know? And, and that is very frustrating, you know, when you see, so what are the historian job, you know, like, because at the end, does true really matter? You know, like, or is the, the narrative that you frame it into what really counts? Because, it's very frustrating that the time that we are living where we have more information than ever is the time when lies and manipulation are more effective. Yeah, but we, we do see this. I mean, this is something I always tell my students when, when we do medieval, when we look at medieval histories or we look at ancient histories, the historians are, are shaping these histories in really significant ways, right? They're, they're completely that's changing. That's the point. Yeah, they, they have <laughs> these, these political outcomes in mind, right? That is the point of the whole thing. 
yeah, this is this is what they're doing. So yeah, so I I love I love this connection to Kane. I love this the, yeah. the way that you're you're showing that this becomes a model that these historians can use, yeah. a, a shared knowledge they can use as a way of of telling their stories, of getting their point across, of kind of yeah. convincing their audience that even though Enrique is, is a killer, he's actually kind of doing what he has to do in this case. Yeah. Right? Um, so to kind of I guess kind of sum up this this first part, talking about about the book and talking about Kane. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit on just on how you see kind of the, the the impact of this moving forward. How you see kind of what are some ways we can use this study to better understand these histories, better understand these narratives, better understand some of this 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 literature from this period. Yeah, I think that I want to tell you from a personal uh, kind of like experience. I, I I as you mentioned before, I study history. My my BA was in ancient and medieval history, and it was at that time five years of only history, and three of them only medieval history mostly. But I realized I, I lost faith in, in in history in the way that when I was reading the narrative, I would say this is pure literature, and we are trying to find how like like oh you find something here and something there, it means that probably happened. What is the point? That is is a narrative to legitimate something is pure fiction. And so I realized that I have to know more about literary studies to really be a good historian. And I believe that what is important here is that we, I believe that we have to go back to be a, a, a philologist. I think that it hasn't been good for the humanities that we divide this history from linguistics and history from literature and so forth. A, a, a medievalist is a medievalist. We should be medievalist. And we should work with philosophy, philology, theology, history, and so forth, because everything is going to help us to understand what we understand. In my, in, in my case, for example, when I'm more interested with, with the transformation of ideas, but with the, the facts themselves. No? I think that, that what really happened or didn't happen for me is not that relevant in, in the studies I do. But uh, uh, to understand the past and to understand the medieval times, I, I think that there is a we need to rethink about how we do it. And I believe that we have to go back to this idea of every medievalist has to be working with different disciplines. I don't know if I have answered your question or I, not. I, I, I think so. No, it's, I, yeah, I, I really think you have. I mean, one of the things that's so important, and I think one of the things that we often do in academia is we kind of get into these very small little niches, right? These very small yeah. little areas. Yes. Like this is what we do. We yeah. only have a, a part of the story. And I think to tell this yeah. whole story, we do need to bring in literary studies, we need to bring in history, philosophy, political science. All these things are just ways of better understanding what's yes. happening. Yeah. And I think that's that's crucial. And I think that's that's what it yeah. looks like you're doing in your book. And I think that's that's fantastic, right? Is we we're, we're getting a bigger picture of things, and this is what really I think really matters. Mm -hmm. I think that's also a great transition to what I want to do in, in the second part of this interview. Yeah. And, and talk a little bit about the digital humanities. I mean, you have this. Yeah. Um, digital project, which looks looks fantastic. Um, that's talking about the Generata Storia of Alfonso X. And we kind of jumped over Alfonso X talking about Keynesm, talking about some of these early historians. So I want to kind of go back to Alfonso. Yeah. Um, and actually before talking about your project, before talking about the Generata Storia, I, I do just want to talk a little bit about Alfonso himself. So for our audience, who who was Alfonso X? Why is he important? Why 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 should we devote this kind of attention to him today? What what are we hoping to get from this? You know, related with what we just uh, were saying before, I personally believe that the person who 
understood Alfonso X the better, the best was uh, Paco Marquez Villanueva. And that is, again, the thing is a, a, a philologist who really start working with in, in between history and, uh, and philology. And for me, the most interesting work and the more, com if you want to understand Alfonso X, you have to read this book. Hmm. And he defined him as the last Khalifa. And he was, that is the relevance of Alfonso. That is why Alfonso X is different and is unique in some ways. He's the last Khalifa of Spain. I, I like that a lot. What what does he mean by he's the last the last caliph? What, what yeah. what's meant by that? But it means that his goal. Okay, his father was the big conqueror. Mm -hmm. That was done. But he he interest the interest that he had was to have a sophisticated and articulated court. So he is the big. He brings a huge reformation or reform institutionally and administrative, and he he brings the laws. He articulated the whole thing. He wants to be remembered. And he, a, a califa, a good califa, a good calif, uh, is someone who also has an intellectual level. So he's the king that is, that is why the wise is the typical title that a calif will receive. A calif has to be an example of not only of being a, a warrior, but of being a wise person. Mm -hmm. One who is articulated, who is the king of everyone, so the model, his model is very Easter, Easter way of understanding being a king. And that is a quite a unique moment. Sadly, is the end. After him, he also loses his head at the end of his life. You know, we know that he has some issues, physical and psychological issues and personal issues. Mm -hmm. And it was sad. But he did things that no other king in Europe have done. Uh, you have... Federico Barbarroja, Sicilian, of course, and, you know, family of Alfonso. But the thing with Alfonso is that he had an idea of kinship that it was different and it's going to be highly influential of what is going to be Europe afterwards. And, and the big influence is to understood his, his work as a king, as a caliph. And that is why he was so despised by many other people, the church first, many other people who you know, the same thing that happened with Pedro with the Trastamara propaganda. He likes he, the moves too much. You know, you see the Alcázar uh, of Seville. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but why are you going to build a Christian palace? Are so uncomfortable. You build a more palace, you know, if you want to live well. But you can, people will finger you say, you know, like, well, this guy is too suspicious of being kind. Of, you know? mm -hmm. He likes Jews and Muslims too much. Yeah, or, or wearing the clothes from Andalusi clothes and eating Andalusi yeah. food. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so Alfonso has this, I mean, I, I like this way that you put it, right? So this emphasis on, on wisdom, this emphasis on kind of being this, this intellectual head of the kingdom. We yeah. see this with all these different writings that he has, right? History, literature, yeah. poetry, all, I mean, just scientific texts. And the vernacular. This is an Arabic thing. The language of the people is the language of the books. This is what happened. That didn't happen in any other place in Europe. Vernacular. He writes in vernacular. And he writes these things that were seen as high culture, right? Scientific uh, text, yeah. science, text in the vernacular. History, everything in vernacular. And of course, that is why I'm working here with Miguel, who is a, an amazing linguist, is the, the transformation of the language. He is what Parque Marguerite said. He really expands, you know, mm -hmm. the language to a 
point that is what we are using. That Spanish that we are working on is this more or less the Spanish that we are using today. That didn't happen with English or French or even Portuguese. Like the, that, that is amazing. And we I mean, can read that in Spanish. Everyone can read that in Spanish. Which is incredible, right? If you go back really? and look at 13th century English, it's completely foreign. It's a different language. It, it, completely different. They are so lost. Yeah, you know, like, and 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 this is what we are doing, like, the, with the project that we are doing. We have many different scholars involved because one of the things that Market Villanueva said is in his book that I, tr I have tried to kind of like undo is is that he he said that still the Arabs, the Arabs, the Hispanics, they don't talk with each other. They don't share the, the things. And this is what we're trying to undo. This is a research project with Hispanics, Arabs, linguists, uh, specialists in art history, specialists in different fields. And because there is no other way to work in medieval Iberia than talking with and working with each other. No other way. We're living in a moment that there's no other way. I, I love that. And, and I completely agree. That this is the, the type of kind of coming together from different fields, different backgrounds that we need to, to yeah. really engage with these texts. Yeah. And I think that's particularly true with a text like the Henerata story, right? which is such yeah. a complex, convoluted work. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a proto French encyclopedia. So could you maybe give our, our audience just a little bit of background? What, what is the Henerata story? What makes it different? Why is it special? What maybe, how does it compare to other things produced at this time or, or does it, right? You know, it's connected with what I say about Alfonso. It's unique. Okay, there were many universal histories written before, but not like this one. Not only because it's like four to six thousand pages that didn't that you don't find that anywhere. But it's because of the way it was written. It's so sophisticated, so interesting, really, and so unknown. Yeah. Sorry, just to jump in really quickly. I mean, one of the things that I find so interesting about the general story is that it's so much less studied than the Historia de España. Alfonso. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because the Historia de España, you can handle the Historia de España. But with this general historia, the, the more we we have been six years working on it, uh, we're still we're beginning. This is just the beginning. And the more we get into it, the more sophisticated we realize it is. There are so many different hands. There are so many different, even scriptoriums is but the digital humanities is going is giving us the, the 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 tools to unravel all this and also interdisciplinary work uh, both things combined so we are very enthusiastic we are having so much fun doing it and really uh, the good thing about it is that we are learning so much like every monday when we start editing together uh, i can tell you like i is my is the one of my favorite times of the week that I learn so much. I feel like I'm a student and I'm listening to this. We are like all the time sharing all these things and it's like little kids play video games. It's <laughs> 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 something similar to that. And that is the thing that we, we are in a time of the, that the solo scholar is gone. There's so much knowledge. There's so much information out there. You cannot handle that. I can't. <laughs> I can't handle that. Only on your field. Only in your field, you, it's impossible you can reach, read everything that, that is coming out to know what, it's impossible. So you I, need to work with, with others. I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think particularly with the general story. So you mentioned it's it's this universal history that covers everything from the creation of the world. It was, I think, originally designed to go to Alfonso's own time. Yeah, yeah but it, um, it stopped with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's already, yeah. It's, uh, year zero. <laughs> <laughs> 
to zero. You I, go to zero. I remember trying to work with it in the library and trying to pull out some things from it. It's just like oh, these giant volumes, one after the other. And she's like, this is yeah. here. Um, it also includes history, literature, philosophy. I, I know yeah. Ovid. It's Everything. Zoology, uh, botanics, uh, astronomy, everything. It, this is the cool thing because I can hire students from many different disciplines to work with us. We, we can, because now that we, we're going to move to a partnership, uh, try a partnership grant, we're going to be able to, to be more feasible to hire many different students, many different institutions to be working that. And it doesn't have to be hum, a, a students from humanities. In fact, I am using more students from that, zoology, biology, everything. It's a big encyclopedia. I think that's fantastic. Could you, I mean, I think that leads to my next question. What, what do you see as kind of the goals of, of this project? What do you hope to kind of get from it? I mean, you mentioned kind of folks coming together and talking about it. Are you looking yeah. at an addition of it? Are you looking to... We're doing many things at the same time because I, I, if something that I didn't have the chance to show you is the platform. That is close to still because we are working on it. But I, I probably I, I will be able to show you the platform. I will be able to explain better what we're doing. Uh, we are building this amazing platform where we can edit, translate, and, and annotate that test. But at the same time, we can do so many other things. When we are uh, going to be able to detect uh, the different hands on it, we're going to be able to separate the test many times. When we are annotating the test, we're going to be able to create maps on the toponyms and everything. Uh, so we are really doing many things at the same time, and it's getting better and better. The goal is multiple because the main goal is to do a critical edition, annotated edition of the whole general historia. It's going to take a while. But at the same time, we are getting so much information about how was medieval Iberia. Because we are learning that they're not only Jewish writers, for example, many of them, is that there are different Jewish writers. I mean, there are different Jewish writers that there are some people that probably they are following a more literal uh, idea of Rashi, kind of a literal reading. And there are some uh, Neoplatonic Jews who don't follow the same. So we're talking about a quite sophisticated uh, group of writers mm. and group of authors. I think that the most relevant of the project, honestly, Brenton, Brenton, that is the methodology that we are discovering while we're doing. That probably is the most relevant part. We are, while we are moving along, we are creating a new methodology to work with medieval studies. I, I think that's great. You mentioned in the, the description of the project as well, you talk about, and I, and I have the, the quote here because I think it's, it's really great. You, you say, one of the things you're, you're doing with the project is positioning the study of the Henry Australia within the multicultural context of its production and reevaluating the role of Judaism and Islam, as well as the Greco-Roman classical tradition in early vernacular, in early vernacular Castilian and European history writing and fiction. So I, I love kind of the, the, the goal of a critical edition. I love really looking at this as a mirror for the society that's producing it. I didn't realize you had so many different types of, so many different authors working on this from different cultural backgrounds as well. Um, and so I, I guess maybe my, my next question would be, how does this allow us to kind of think more carefully about religious culture and religious identity in medieval Liberia at this time, right? This is a huge issue, right? This is something we've been talking about for decades and decades. This touches on ideas of convivencia, touches yeah. on the idea of these the societies living together, living in harmony or not in harmony. Yeah. So I'm wondering how the, the general story fits into some of these larger issues about religious identity, religious culture in, in general. So that, that is a very good question, but quite diff difficult to answer um, effectively. 
first, I, I have to go back to the what convivencia is and what Américo Castro defined as convivencia because many people were like accusing him of, why are you thinking you're dreaming about? I said, you know, convivencia is to live close to someone. Probably the people that you, that is like kind of your worst enemy is your neighbor, but you are living close to him. That is convivencia. Convivencia is living close to someone else, which is an obvious thing with medieval Liberia. They are living very closely. How are they getting along? I don't know. You get, the convivencia could be good and the convivencia would be a, the worst nightmare. Uh, you know, like the closer sometimes the relation is the worst. But, but the, the thing is that it was never the same. It was constantly changing and it was constantly different depending on which different kingdom we're talking about, with different moment, with different circumstances, and which specific Christian or Islamic or Jewish community, because this is not only three groups. You know, the Christians, here, like Miguel is from San Millán, uh, is, is, is from Rioja, and you know, like the, 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 the people from the monastery in the top and the monastery in the bottom, you know, like the, the French, you know, and the, uh, the Visigothics, you know, like the ones who were following the, the traditional church in Spain, they hate each other. Uh, and they were, you know, like the, the Cluny senses, you know, the, the Cluny was, was kind of moving along, taking over the spaces of the Christians, the traditional Christians, and they hate each other like uh, they were Jews that were completely confronted because they thought in a very completely different way about Judaism. And what am I going to say about Muslims? You know, they were fighting uh, with the different kingdom of Taifas for very long. So this is a very difficult thing to say. What is very interesting is that in the 13th century, there is a time where people stop, and not only in Spain, for example, you have the Mongols universal history, and they start thinking, you know, we're going close to living in a global world, you know, or the Mongols, of course, because they are concrete, you know, and they're taking over, and they were very interested in all these religions, in all these things, and they were very interested on, are we going to be able to live together, thinking in different ways? And so I, I find that the general historia is kind of have a similar aim. It's not about that, ah, oh, we want to love each other or something. It's, it's, it's about noting the difference and at the same time, the certain compatibilities mm -hmm. that can be breached. And you can do it with the Bible, you know, you can do a pretty good job. And, and to put it with the Bible and the other histories and the possibility of having different versions of the same thing and everyone is okay with that, that is flexibility. And that is a very good recipe of how can we understand each other to be able to say, okay, this is not an ultimate or a, a, a final version of anything. These people think like that, other people think like that and pick whatever you want. It's more rabbinic in that way. These are the different interpretation. You pick the one you like the most. And it's a very good recipe. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, we and we do see in the general story, right? I mean, they're pulling from, from scripture, they're putting it in, and they are putting different versions of the same story yeah. and over again, or even in, in the classical tradition as well. I remember there's like three different versions of Hercules that's in there in, in different parts, and yeah. different figures keep coming back in slightly different ways. Yeah, I, I think that's great. So again, kind of similar to what I asked about the, the book on Cain, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering kind of where you see this project going in the future and also kind of what you hope will become the main takeaways, the main impact of this project as well. I mean, you, you already mentioned methodology. You think that might be kind of one yeah. of the important aspects. I was wondering if you could maybe either expand on that or something else that you yeah. hope people will come to and take from this project. You know, I, I, I want to connect with the conversation that we have before we you start recording that kind of the warm up conversation that we have. You know, about 
the work we do as historians or uh, as medievalists and so forth, we know that the final product of our work is going to take quite a while. And we, it's not about that we're going to end for that moment to start having a, 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 a dissemination of the work we are doing. And we are uh, creating, we are thinking about different ways of doing it besides the traditional, you know, academic book or journals or conferences and so forth. So one of the things, and this is the kind of the luxury of working in a faculty that is also creative studies, we are thinking of creative ways of dissemination. Uh, and in this kind of a, a moment, after six years of really figuring out how do we're gonna do the work and doing it, now is the time to start how we're gonna do this dissemination of this, of this work that goes beyond the classical way of doing it. That again, I think that, yeah, it's very important, but there are many other people interested in it. And that is what I think about the job, the work you are doing with your podcast. We need to reach people outside. It's very important because of, of the time we are living of this post-true. If we academics don't do that, mm-hmm. other people that are not are going to do our job and probably they're going to make up many things in the way. So we have to. It's, it's, it should be part of our job. Yeah, and This is what we are trying right now. And I think particularly as medievalists, I mean, we've seen the Middle Ages being reinterpreted in ways that are really yeah. problematic and really incorrect. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. we need to be like, this is what it is. We need to articulate what, what yeah. we know and what, yeah. we've, what we've seen. Yeah, yeah we, we work in a period that always has been condemned, no, medieval age, middle ages. It sounds like Halloween, you know, but there were many different middle ages. And also, you know, it's paying the idea of modernity as a positive thing and everything that comes after. When it's the other way around, many things. Really, the people in modernity, they were far more, religion was a factor of conflict far more than in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, there was more this idea of a global world where we can live together. Uh, that is broken in modernity. The power of the Pope is far stronger there than in the Middle Ages. The power of the church is far stronger there than it was in the Middle Ages. So we have a very disfavored idea of the Middle Ages. The best erotic literature was written in the Middle Ages. Medieval people were fun, you know, like the, it was fun things to do and people have a lot of, and, and they were amazing, like the, the Florence or the Venice of the Middle Ages, they, they were quite amazing. Baghdad, Sevilla, eh, Cordoba, Cairo were amazing, super sophisticated cities. It's not this idea of, you know, the people in the, with the mud and, you know, with no teeth, you know. <laughs> I think that's such an important, such an important note, right? The yeah. people in the just were sophisticated. They were smart. They're not. I mean, I think people yeah. have an idea from like Monty Python, where it's like they're yeah, 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 yeah. Because, because it's it's kind of the British Middle Ages, but but the thing is that what happened with Byzantium, what happened with the Mediterranean, science in the Middle Ages is huge. What happened is written in Arabic. It's uh, in Arabic, or it's it's in the Mediterranean. It's not in Northwestern Europe, and so yeah, a lot of yeah, yeah. That's the thing that, that we have to tend in our kind of work to more like, and it's coming a lot in the way of Mediterranean studies, you know, like this is a different reality. I, I think that's yeah. right. I, I think there's so much, so much more there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have one last question and then I know, I know you're busy, so I'll, I'll let you go. Yeah. I'm really impressed. And I, I think this builds on our, the, this last question, digital humanities have so many opportunities. So I'm just kind of wondering where you see the field going with digital humanities in general? And what are some ways that you think digital humanities can help us to either reach a wider audience 
or engage more deeply with the text or kind of understand some of these texts or ideas in, in deeper ways. So basically, yeah. where do you see the digital humanities going as we as we move forward from here in, in 2022? You know, that has to do with the conversation that we have about the Middle Ages and modernity, you know, the print. Oh, now the books are going to be print. The good thing about the, the digital humanities is the pre-print, but it's more sophisticated. Is when sometimes, and we were talking about this, we, one of the reasons we started doing the project is because the general historia was edited by, and it was in the book. Mm -hmm. And it means that you kill it because it's in the book. Then that the edition is done. No, no, that is not done. It was not done. We have to do all the work. And digital humanities allow you to do that. Digital humanities leave the book alive. Mm. Like before it was with orality, you don't kill it. It's in a constant state of, and the possibilities that gave for medieval studies are amazing. I have to start saying that I am very lucky to be working with people that they really know about digital humanities. I'm a completely ignorant, still I am, uh, but I knew that I have to rely on, on them. And I, the more I know about it, the more amazed I, I am about the, I really believe that the future of medieval studies is digital humanities because of the, the sources that we work, the way we work, and the possibilities that gives to medieval studies. I think that there is not gonna be a way around. So I, if, if any potential future medievalist is listening to your podcast, I will say start now, because the future medievalist is a medievalist that knows about digital humanities. That sounds good. I, I, would, I, would, I would agree. So. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think there's just so many opportunities, so many things that could be done. And I think I think we're going to see in the next 10, 20, 30 years that folks are doing just incredible things, using these technologies, yes. using these tools to engage with this material, and then yeah. also with other folks as well. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is amazing, the possibility of working in real time, everyone, and not waiting to the conference to... Was something that I really don't like at all. That there are emails. Please let's meet and talk, and instead of sending emails back and forth. Well, and that and that note, which I think is universal. I think yeah. we are we are out of time. Um, so I would like to thank Francisco for being here with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's it's our absolute pleasure. So thank you all for listening. On behalf of Historias, I'm Brett Rodriguez, and I hope you all have enjoyed the show. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.